hello everybody welcome to episode four of the united cloud um we're here to talk about recruitment um you know crazy recruitment things that can happen out of nowhere and you know that's been the story of Ineos lately and what do we see today we saw this jason wilcox story so much on dan ashworth i mean how are you doing mate mate i'm good i'm ready to tackle some some big topics and with that i think we made the executive decision of signing off that a Gagan press probably doesn't suit this mm. uh, this this episode. Uh, if you're not familiar with what the Gagan press is, it's just a section where we sort of rattle off a, a few subjects that have been popping up on United Twitter. Uh, but the main subject that me and Isaac have both agreed will be the the main premise of this episode is Dan Ashworth and recently Jason Wilcox, who is like the rumours have started coming out in the last two three hours. Everything's moving quite fast, so. Again, another episode focused on like the the backroom board sort of yeah. movements rather than rather than like the stories on the pitch, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, we we we've been linked with Paul Mitchell for a while. Looks like that's not going to happen now. Um, Jason Wilcox's name's come up instead. Um, it's very much an idea. I think the structure. I, I want to get into it, like how how Ashworth's going to work, what sort of recruiter he is. I know you've got some excellent work that you've done in the past on Dan Ashworth too. So that's some really valuable insight to come up for everyone. Um, I think, you know, it's very much going to be a case of Ashworth is the manager almost who oversees all of this project. And you've got Wilcox purporting into him. Um, a lot of people thought that Paul Mitchell would maybe go into this like recruitment sort of base role. Um, how do you see it working? What do you think the plan is for Ineos? And how excited are you by this? Because honestly, I... Omar Barada was crazy, right? You're taking Manchester City CEO, and that's you know we talk Manchester City CEO, so you're taking someone a senior figure from Man City to be a CEO, and that's that's crazy given the rivalry and the fact that he's worked with these elite coaches, elite elite people in the in the top of the game. This is another one, another another like another level up, Dan Ashworth. It's someone who's contracted to a club who are aiming to eclipse Manchester United cash strats with the Saudi money. There's so much going on in Newcastle. It's been a crazy start for them. Yet Ashworth is going to come and jump ship to United. It's a huge statement. It's a massive statement, mate. And I think the most, um, in terms of structure, the, the thing that makes me so excited is you can you can go about and steal big names, you know, the likes of Michael Edwards and Paul Mitchell currently out of jobs. But the fact that you're taking them off your rivals who are currently employing these these big names, you know, that is a massive sign of intent. And I think the Ashworth, uh, what's um, what's interesting about Ashworth in comparison to Edwards and Mitchell, uh, Edwards is someone who notoriously apparently left Liverpool because Klopp was increasing his power in terms of boardroom versus manager. And I think Edwards and his uh, scouting department sort of left on like a mass exodus from the club on good terms, apparently. But um, it was a case of power, like a dynamic between the manager and the and the you know directors and the uh, technical directors where it wasn't really working. And the same happened for Mitchell, but in sort of different fashion. Mitchell went to Leipzig. And then he had the opportunity to have a role at AS Monaco and Cirque Bruges, uh, where he would oversee a massive project and really be the man in charge. And I think them two in that capacity are different profiles to Ashworth. 
although Ashworth is a big name, he's very much someone who's part of a team and has been part of like a boardroom team the entire time in his career, whether that was at uh, Brighton, uh, Newcastle, and even England football before that, and West Brom as well. So I think what we're getting here is someone that knows his role and knows that it's not about him being the big man in charge that's pulling the strings on all these transfers, rather being part of a, a functioning team that can can move the club forward. Yeah, I think like it's very much a case of overseeing a department and people people reporting into him. And he's someone who's exceptionally qualified in the work he did at West Brom um, while he was there. West Brom obviously now no longer the solid sort of Premier League club that they were. Very impressive. A lot of people say that his work in England and, and, and his idea that this, the only thing that changes throughout the entire setup for, for the England national team is the size of the shirt. It, in the, it doesn't matter what age group you play for. Kind of aligning that and having a clear process, that's something that fits him in any of his ideals. And a lot of people think that the work he did in England was the best work he did. Um, obviously, Brighton are as hugely successful outfit now, and a lot of the work that, that, that Ashworth put in at Brighton is now being sort of, you know, cons- consolidated or, or, or cemented, Just- I suppose. Yeah, go, go for it. Just to touch on his work in England, um, St. George's Park, I've been to St. George's Park a couple of times and uh, a lot of it was for sessions where they talk about um, player development and optimum player development. And some frameworks that they refer back to very often were put in place in the mid-2010s, so between 2014, 2015. By Dan Ashworth. And they talk about the, the elite performance plan, the, the EPPP, they call it and the FA Four Corners model, and all these models that they've put in place for player development. Well, Ashworth was a massive part of what was happening in the FA England football in St George's Park at that time. Um, so, you know, it's no surprise that, you know, a lot of success that have come out of the, the mid-2000, uh, 2010, sorry, is accredited to a lot of work Ashworth has done. And these sort of models and frameworks for player development is what affected players like Phil Foden, uh, Marcus Rashford, that sort of generation of players. And, you know, that sort of brings it full circle to Jason Wilcox, who perhaps is one of the biggest names in applying what has been applied at England football to City football as well. Uh, So I think it's a really good you know, like synergy of uh, individuals there where that can really sort of optimise what we've got at youth level and also, you know, pull strings to get stuff together uh, through recruitment as well. So just something I wanted to mention there. No, very good. Uh, I, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, Ineos are cooking at the moment. Like it is, Yeah, bro. The, these moves are huge. Um, and you can imagine that there's quite a lot of discourse behind the scenes, you know, amongst a Barada, um Brailsford, Blanc, Radcliffe, Ashworth himself, Wilcox, sort of figuring out, right, how are we going to do this? What sort of structure are we get? Who do we need? Um, plausible to assume that there's a big connection between Barada and Wilcox, given that they both worked at Man City together. Um, Let's talk about that connection, mate. I was just going to say, yeah. uh, I want to read out a quote from uh, the man himself, Dan Ashworth, when he was working at Brighton and how he viewed his own role and the role of his... Uh, his team whilst he was there. And I just want to, first of all, read out the quote and then get your thoughts on how what he's saying, you know, when he was at Brighton can really be applied to 
the new team that Ineos is forming. So I'll, I'll yeah. read out the quote and um, it'll probably pop up on screen as well, um, just so you can read it out as uh, read it as well. So Graham is is at the time when Graham Potter was there, and uh, Dan Ashworth says, "My job is to, like spokes of a wheel, bring together seven departments. I sit in the middle of the wheel, and there's two things that really connect all these folks together." Secondly, when those heads of department leave, you keep the wheels spinning. I think what is important is the ability or the connection from boardroom in and onto the football pitch. Yeah. So he gave a metaphor of spokes of a wheel and the departments across the football club. And Ashworth was at the centre of that wheel and sort of making sure that these departments were working together. Do you think Ashworth... At United is the same role? Is he at the centre of the wheel or is that Barada's responsibility? Hmm. And where does this sort of framework fit in in a United context? I, I think in terms of the football side of the club, yes, it would be Ashworth. It seems as though, I mean, I think it seems as though Ashworth wanted that role at United when they sounded him out in 2022. But United wanted him to work with John Murto. Now it looks like John Murto is not going to have a role at United in this in your setup ultimately. Um, I think Ineos have got an idea for like a triumvirate where it's 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 Barada, it's a sporting director, and then the manager. Obviously, the manager is going to be very powerful, but I think yeah, it's likely that it will be Ashworth in the centre, and then the manager feeds into that, and this 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 then Wilcox type character, the the sort of the head of recruitment. Or I don't know whether it's going to be a director of football and a sporting director or something along those. I'm not sure what the terminology is going to be yet. It's kind of all academic, but yeah, the slightly less senior sort of more recruitment based figure who's also going to be very experienced like Wilcox would be or like hypothetically Paul Mitchell would have been. These 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 sorts of figures will feed into it. I imagine Ashworth will be coming in, you know, the amount of money they're going to pay to Newcastle, how, how the term of the club are to get a hold of him. It is very plausible that he'll have a very senior role there. So yeah, I think... Spokes in the wheel is a great analogy, and I could tell you he wanted to use that as well. It's a, it's a great quote. Um, I'm really excited by the idea of actually having somebody who knows how to manage across different departments rather than chucking in like a, a sort of false puppet figurehead type thing like Woodward may have been. Um, and having these sort of competent figures is such a, such a change for us. Do you think... With Ashworth coming in, I reference Paul Mitchell and Michael Edwards being figures that sort of demand a, quite a lot of power. Do you think Ashworth coming in sort of is good signals for the project that Ten Hag currently has running uh, in comparison to a different uh, director that might have come in? Um, I don't know if it's a... Uh, I mean, if you're Eric Ten Hag, I think you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, right pretty clear that I've had to come into a club where there's a substandard structure. I've been left to my own devices quite a lot, but I'm actually fairly content in that position because I've got a lot of power, right? I think last season, I think Ten Hag really relished that power that he had. Um, and you could tell by his approach and the way that he, the way that he went about his, about, about his job in, in, in interviews as well. Like he, he seemed to be somebody who really enjoyed that responsibility and felt it. This season, I think he's kind of been a bit drowned out by all those responsibilities that he's had. And I think the the sort of recruitment failings have really like you know left a lot to be desired. Obviously, the lack of Martinez has been a problem um, consistently throughout the season. Not replacing him and having backup and cover has been a problem, which probably would have been addressed by a competent structure. So I imagine Ten Hag must be thinking, on one hand, great, 
I've actually got a structure who can help me out. But on the other hand, he's probably thinking, hmm, is my position under threat? Yes, it's under more threat than it would have been before because I've got people who might have different ideas and might have more streamlined ideas that doesn't involve me. And then his other idea would be, is my sort of agency within this structure under threat? And the answer to that is unequivocally, yes, of course it is, because he's now not having such an important role in recruitment, which a lot of United fans probably think is quite a good thing. Um, instead, the players will be supplied by this, you know, this with Ashworth in the centre and these spokes of the wheel and every, everyone's ideas coming in. Ultimately, it's up to that Ashworth and plausibly more so Wilcox as well, being a proper sporting director rather than something, something like Murto. I feel, yeah, you know, he could view it as his position has sort of, you know, even if it's not under threat, certainly diminished in terms of how much responsibility he has yeah. outside of the football sort of side of things, um, uh, the coaching side of things. What I would say, though, again, um, basically, uh, for a bit of context, I did a dissertation uh, a couple of years ago, and the reason I have so many Dan Ashworth quotes is what part of my di- dissertation was dedicated to Dan Ashworth, which shows you how much Expert of a nerd knowledge. I am in football, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so just a, another quote that I have on hand to throw into the mix of things is actually how Ashworth referenced um, Graham Potter, who's the manager, and Hope Powell, who's the, the women's manager for Brighton as well. So that might be another thing. Uh, Ashworth also maybe overseeing the, the women's team as well. But in this example here, he said specifically, we recruit in order to try and help Hope and Graham win enough football matches and to keep the club successful. So in that you know, statement alone, it shows that most of the actions he does is for the manager. You know, he's, he's, a, he's not self-serving in that regard. He's not no. looking to build his own name. And I feel like, you know, let's, let's move further on into Ashworth's career. What do you think he's done at Newcastle that maybe reflects what he was saying when he was at, when he was at uh, Brighton? I think when I look at Newcastle, and I think this is, a, this is, this is an idea that they, that they as a club have always tried to sort of give off. And they certainly are at the moment to their credit. I see unity. I see people on the same page. And I know it's not been plain sailing for them this season. And I know they're nowhere near the solid defensive out- outfit they were last year. Um, Pope's injury has been especially difficult for them. Having no Botman has been a problem. But the way they do their team photos with Jason Tindall and Eddie Howe, you know, everyone, all, that whole sort of thing, it seems like everyone's on the same page and everyone's sort of supported. And I think, look, Newcastle made some crazy signings of the money they had under Ashworth as well. Um, you know, signing someone like Alexander Isaac is crazy, um, let alone Bruno Himarais, uh, who I think was actually signed before Ashworth's arrival. Um, but that sort of idea of creating a, a club where everyone's on the same page is something I think we'll see at United. And yeah, what you said about, you know, supporting the manager to win as many matches as possible, it is important. If Ineos do choose to keep Ten Hag, and I think you know the end of the season is probably going to be probably going to be a little bit insecure for him. If they do stick with him, they're going to have to support him, and obviously he'll want to be consolidated on transfers. That's I imagine it's you know folly to suggest that Ten Hag won't be won't be asked about players we're signing. He'll probably have some sort of de facto veto power, right? Um, but which is quite a phrase, actually, isn't it? Um, but I, I would be, I imagine that it would be a case of look, this is our guy now. He's our, he's our coach. 
more than he is our manager sort of thing. I think Graham Potter, certainly at Brighton, seemed like more of a coach than a manager, which is perhaps why he struggled coming into an uneven structure at Chelsea. Um, I suppose the good news is, if, you, if, we, if we are going to compare ourselves to Chelsea, I know, I know you asked me about Ashworth and what he did, but Potter going on is almost even more interesting in this case study because that was you know how this sort of balance of power broke down. Um, when Potter arrived at Chelsea, he moved into a structure that was still being established whilst he was there. And it was very clearly a, a problem as the season went on. And it was a big reason why he struggled. At United, because of the way that this sort of takeover has been prolonged and it's been kind of pushed back a year, it's almost meant that we've had we've got this season now, the end of the season, to to bring these, bring these guys in, uh, build our team. And then hopefully by the time... The, the new season kicks around it's much more clear right this is what everyone's doing this is who, who everyone's reporting to this is how our balance of powers looks and this is what your role is Eric Ten Hag as the manager if he indeed does stay um any idea about Potter do you think there's any chance that you know given given Radcliffe and Ineos's clear admiration for him as has been reported and the fact that Ashworth has worked with him before do you see, you know, if there was to be a manager change, what would you think about that? Yeah, I think obviously Potter has been a name that's been thrown out there and with good reason. Uh, it, there's obvious connections with uh, Ratcliffe and Dave Brailsford who have seemed to develop a relationship there. And then obviously if you get Ashworth in as well, that's someone that has worked with him before. What I would say on that is... Ashworth, and I just want to look at Brighton, for example. Um, Brighton, when they lost Potter and got De Zerbi in, there was no massive drop-off of performance. It sort of continued running. And that was a testament to Ashworth's job before he left of establishing a club structure that works regardless of, you know, who's in power almost. You know, it's not really a case of who's in power. It's a case of how the, the system works and how it continues to work. And something like that short, sort of makes me think, if Ashworth establishes that at Manchester United, the manager is an expendable asset. It's not really about the manager anymore. It's just who fits the system. Very much like a football team. You look at players that start to fit the system. It doesn't really matter about individual quality all the time it's about people that are the right person for the job and I think if Ashworth is successful in establishing that structure in the next uh, two three years you know the more and more the the structure gets established and it becomes a a well-run machine well-running machine I think you know you start to look at Ten Hag and he becomes an expendable asset and someone like Potter who is a very functional asset in Ashworth's size and apparently in Ratcliffe and Dave Brailsford's eyes. He becomes a lot more attractive when everything around him is running perfectly. And I think yeah. that's the worry I have with, well, for if I was Ten Hag, that's the worry I would have, is almost, it's a bit, it's a bit crazy. The better Ashworth does, the more likely he is to, to hit the hay. <laughs> like, it's a bit yeah. crazy. It is. I, I don't know. I, like, I do think Potter has got redeemable qualities as a manager. And I think he was like, as we said, like put in a bit of a dodgy situation at Chelsea. I think it's probably too early to start speculating about potential managerial changes, especially when I think both of us 
you know, maybe Brexit certainly given the impression in previous episodes as much as anything else that we would definitely like to see Ten Hag see out his project and stay. Um, I do think that one of the most interesting things about all of this and having this sort of streamlined operation of people with a similar sort of idea and a sort of an Ineos plan is that multi-club connection and the idea of establishing, right, this is how we are going to play football. And if Ten Hag has shown one thing this season, albeit to mixed success, is that he is an arch pragmatist. He can he can adapt or he will he will at least attempt attempt to adapt. And I know he's not always done it done it especially well. And oftentimes he's adapted and actually created more problems than he's solved. Um, but I do think that he's somebody who would be willing to adapt to a mould to an Ineos style of play. I think he, he will be willing. But something you said just then is we hope that he sees out the Ten Hag project. Mm. I think the thing that might cause a bit of friction is the realisation that it's no longer a Ten Hag project anymore. And whether... I'm not saying Ten Hag's a massive egotist, like power hungry, you know, person. But when you've had that to begin with, the shift can be quite night and day. If you can't like flip into, oh, it's now everyone's trying to steer the ship forward. Then I think that's the biggest fear. And whether he'll, he'll come out and adapt to that, it's still, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, mate. I, I'd like to see. I'd like to see how he would do it, um, and I, I do think that when you look at Ten Hag at Ajax, he was someone who was well supported. He had a structure around him. He had Overmars. He had um, and the Sar as the sort of they, they were they were the three sort of they they were the triumvirate, and I almost think that that's something which Ineos like recognises is important. Any elite football club is having a powerful CEO a powerful manager, a powerful sort of football director or head of, head of um, sporting, sporting director, head of sport, having those three roles nailed down and having strong people in each of those categories and having them report is very, very important. Um, at Ajax, I think, you know, Overmars was, was, was completely in charge of that department. Um, Van der Sar was almost like a spokesperson, a face of the club, very, very powerful. And Ten Hag, when he was there, was was because he was successful, he was able to be a particularly powerful manager. Um, I, I think, honestly, if Ten Hag is successful, he will reap the rewards of that in the way that his status is reflected at United. And and, and I, I, I don't think it's going to be a power struggle, per se. I think, as you say, like this sort of spokes of the wheel, certainly with Ashworth in the middle, keeps everybody on the same sort of page. It just has to be this adapted style of football. Uh, is there anything else you want to add on that topic or do you want to move on to Wilcox? I will add one last thing and it is in the form of a quote from my dissertation. I promise like, this is the last quote. <laughs> oh no, keep but on coming. Keep sort on of, coming. It sort of like rounds off the, the, the fine, basically what you just said. Uh, ultimately, uh, this was uh, Ashworth talking about uh, Brighton's owner, Tony Bloom. He said, I think from Tony Bloom's point of view, He's got a vision for this club. He's the owner, he's the chair, and he's the person that dictates policy. And he wanted to make sure that we're able to do some of the things that I've just talked about here. So I just wanted to round that off is, despite what we say, I think Ashworth is a man that knows who's hired him. And that is Jim Ratcliffe in this case. And I think he's the main man that will dictate policy. And I feel like, Hiring Ashworth is a sign of intent that he is 
here to take charge of the football operations at this club. And regardless of what we say about Ten Hag, Ashworth, I think this is a sign of Ratcliffe is here to take responsibility and take control of the situation. So that was the last thing I wanted to add. And I, on that, it's the same, same at Brighton, right? You have, like, so Tony Bloom is super powerful. He's a fan of the club in the same way Radcliffe is a fan of the club. You know, local guy in the same way Radcliffe is a local guy. Um, clearly has ambition to put money in and see it be successful. At the same time, you've got the CEO, Paul Barber, who's apparently industry-renowned as an excellent operator, but rather in the same sort of capacity. Obviously, the slight difference here is that Radcliffe has got that awkward deal with the Glazers and also he's got Sir Dave Brailsford who seems to be pulling the strings in terms of his hires at the moment and you know there's the idea there's a lot of culture around Sir Dave Brailsford in, in, in his exploitations and other sports uh, exertions and other sports rather but one of the one of the ideas is that Brailsford always gets his man and I think Brailsford's man was Barada Brailsford's man is now Dan Ashworth and it would appear that it is going to be um, our good friend uh, um, Wilcox as well. What do you think about this, Wilcox? Well, I've 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 done a bit of digging. Um, mm. Apparently, Wilcox didn't feature in my dissertation, unfortunately. So, <laughs> uh, I've I've done a bit of digging, and I've seen um, a lot of the work he's put in was at Manchester City in terms of youth development, uh, kind of like what uh, Nicky Butt was doing at Manchester United over the last ten years. But of course, Wilcox has done it at. Uh, a higher level to which City have, you know, reaped the rewards from, you know, the likes of Phil Foden, Rico Lewis, Oscar Bob, they can be accredited to the development plans put in by uh, Wilcox. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that experience he will apply to his role at Manchester United. Obviously, with our class of 2024 coming through, very talented team, um, in the in the under 18s, you've got uh, Jack, Tyler Fletcher, Amir, Ibrahimov, uh, Shay Lacey, a lot of talented players there. Harry Amas. So whether they become more integral to the projects moving forward as a result of Wilcox's hire, uh, we'll wait and see. What what do you think about it, mate? Interesting. I mean, yeah, on the class of twenty twenty four, I think like it's it's interesting these last these last four or five years. I do think, you know, despite despite still Glazer ownership and everything, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had ideas about sort of re redesigning our youth development, and you know we saw some structural changes with Murto and Fletcher. I, I think it's nowhere near as significant as it needed to be, right? And it wasn't it wasn't we were not hiring the best in class for those roles. Now we are hiring the best in class, um, but. I actually think the development of the youth team is not a surprise. We've got Kobe Mainu and Alejandro Garnacho at the moment being potential world-class assets in the first team. Um, I think some of, this, some of this was our hand being forced by the uh, Brexit regulations and, and the fact that we were trying our best to squeeze in as many foreign acquisitions as we could before the before the deadline came in with the with, with, with Brexit. Um, very interesting case study, but completely links to the Garnacho signing, for example. Um, and Hannibal, of course, as well, who we probably could get good money for. Uh, see how it goes with Sevilla. Um, you know, Alvaro Fernandez, who we've got good money for or decent enough money for, which helps FFP. Um, but some of the some of the work that's actually been done in the Youth Academy before Ineos has arrived has been pretty good. Now, if we can consolidate that, make it even better, that's that's great. Um, yeah, gone. Do you believe it's actually been as good as it can be? No, because no. I'd argue. Um, 
if we look at it, like you said, all these case studies, how many of these players do you feel had a intentional, well-considered development plan behind their entry into the none, first none, team? None, none of them did. That, that process hasn't existed. I think the process has always been, I think there was a better recruitment policy in the youth academy. I think we've recruited quite well. Um, I think the way that Ten Hag has personally handled the Kobe Mainu, um sort of integration has so far been good. Uh, very good, if, in fact. Um, but yeah, there's not that sort of like pathway that you saw at City with Rico Lewis, Oscar Bob. Uh, obviously, do you think that's Foley. down to the manager then? I don't. So, I don't. I don't know if it's entirely accredited. Sorry, I'll just finish off that. It was just you've accredited Kobe Mainu's development plan and integration into the first team with the like the work of the manager and Ten Hag and I guess that is his final decision on whether he plays right. and whether he doesn't but at City for example I feel like even though everyone accredits Pep with everything there's a sort of understanding that there's people behind Pep that are carefully considering whether it's the right time to play Rico Lewis whether it's the right time to bring Phil Foden in for eight matches in a row and like it's a well-functioning machine whereas yeah. with United we don't. I don't know. I've never heard like a, a team behind the development plans. Yeah, and those people are quite extensive at City, right? Whereas at United, you don't really see it. So it's easy. It's easy, you know, from the outside looking in to, to credit Ten Hag. Really, the only reason why I'm specifically choosing to credit Ten Hag for this Kobe Mainu thing is because of the way that he's spoken about him and the way that he's approached him personally, um, like last season as well. Like, there's obviously the scene after the Carabao Cup final where he was taking time to speak to him individually. He's very clearly valued his talent as an individual and his the sort of player that Ten Hag wants in his team moving forward um, in terms of his profile is almost a perfect alignment between player and manager. Um, but we've spoken about Kobe Mania enough in this podcast to, to, to you know, we're huge fans. Um, but no, I, I, I certainly think that the recruitment in the... Sure. Oh, go on, yeah, keep playing devil's advocate. No, no, I'm, I feel like a bit of a dick now. I just keep coming in with like, oh, no, have you considered it. this? No, I was just going to say... I've just noticed something when you're speaking. I was actually just trying to wrap, back, wrap my head around how many of our youth players have arguably had a well-considered path into the first team. And I'm thinking Manu, definitely. Yeah. Um, Garnacho seemed to have like a well-considered plan. Yeah. And then before that, Mason Greenwood. Yeah. And past that, maybe Scott McTominay as well when Jose brought him in. Other than that, I feel a lot, I don't even think Rashford, well, the story with Rashford is he came in because Martial was injured. It wasn't really a well-considered plan. I don't and even that makes think... me think, oh, yeah, go on. I don't even know if McTominay was a well-considered plan. I think it was almost like a turn to Yeah, him. well, exactly. So let's say, you know, Greenwood, Maynou, Garnacho, that profile of player that we're having well-considered plans for, they're like the creme de la creme of youth players. Precisely. The top of the top. And I feel like, the team, if we had like a well-functioning team, like with Wilcox, you know, considering all of our players, we might see players like, you know, Alvaro Fernandez, for example, have a better plan to get more first-team action. Ahmad Diallo, who we signed for thirty million, and seem like we have no idea what to do with him. Pelistri, yeah. I feel like, and that's because a manager shouldn't have all the responsibility to consider every plan for every young player he has at his team. And no, yeah. I think that's why we've only seen three real players have a, a well-considered plan. Very, very good point. Um, 
it's 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 it is, it is a problem, you know, especially when there is that sort of expectation at United to have youth players in the first team. But much of anything else, it's a financial problem because we haven't been able to generate anywhere near enough from player sales. Like Cole Palmer, great case study. He's a fantastic footballer, obviously. But no way on God's green earth would Manchester United be able to sell an academy uh, prospect with that sort of profile of, of minutes played and first team exposure for 50 million quid um, in the same way the City did. Um, so, like, yeah, I think having... Obviously, Palmer's an exceptional talent and United haven't got loads of loads of talents like that. I mean, there's another one... Go for it. Another yeah. one that City did was Carlos Borges. Uh, yeah. He sold him to, to Ajax. So that's another example. And, and he, could have, he could have gone to West Ham and it's just like, I know it's not worked out perfectly, but yeah, you can you can sell you can sell your assets and, and make, make significant money on FFP. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny that we talk about City being financially sustainable, but, you know, at least they have the illusion of that and they have been able to balance the books <laughs> in the last few years with the FFP stuff. And, that was a problem for United in the last couple of windows. I mean, we have spent quite a bit of money, but we struggled with our FFP balance. Um, and a lot of people, you know, very easy to go Glazer PR or whatever, but there does seem to be some genuine truth in the fact that it just it doesn't take it doesn't take a genius to look at it and see, oh, wait, hang on, Manchester United don't actually sell players very well. So it's not really a surprise of running into FFP issues. Um developing players, giving them first team exposure. Um as much as you can accuse United of being bad negotiators. I simply think we put our players who are trying to sell in very difficult positions where they're not that marketable. Uh, just having your assets is being significantly more marketable by by having a clearer development plan, having aligned structures. You know, one of the most important things, and I, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea at the moment, loaning players out to Nice, um, for example, such a asset for United. Now, anyone, anyone else that that that, that you know, obviously got Lazard in Switzerland as well. You could you could send players to, but. Anyone else at Ineos try and acquire as part of this, which you, you get the sense they probably will look to do it. Um, having these options and pathways to send players out, develop them, have them in the sort of multi, multi-club system, I, I think it's almost like, what's the word? Not post-apocalyptic, but like it's it's, it's, it's a negative view on the future sort of thing, having these sort of multi-club I mean, systems. But what's... What's really upsetting is uh, we United were actually the the trailblazers in that department. Before mm. the Glazers came in, we had you know maybe not as well established links as the City Group have now, but you know clubs like Royal Antwerp in Belgium, yeah, took players um, on loan for us, and we were actually the 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 early movers in this field. I think we also had like a Brazilian club that was taking a lot of players on loan. Uh, and it was unfortunate that after the Glazers came in, that sort of business strategy didn't didn't really happen anymore. And now we're doing it almost twenty years after after establishing our first mover advantage, and then sort of letting other people capitalize on an idea that we very much established. So, you know, at least we're coming there in the end. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think we've spoke a lot about you know the idealistic boardroom movements uh do you want to talk about actual football now before we bore you know the yeah. rest of the the, the, you know, <laughs> the pitch well to be honest with you i think a lot of these signings off the pitch are as important as anything we do on it um and, and will be and i think it's almost more i mean for me at the moment it's more interesting um to be honest i think it's more interesting yeah but when the regular united fan you know <laughs> dave 54 from withenshaw tuning in to to talk about Hi, Dave. You know, how we should nice cross the ball us, a bit mate. more. 
<laughs> yeah, no, stick it in the box. If you managed to stick around for 37 minutes, what you, what have you got to say to Dave, mate? Dave, um, thank you for listening. Um, I appreciate the time for your cup of tea. Um, but I don't know. It's been. I've really enjoyed this chat so far. I can't lie. It's been really fun. Uh, anyhow. Um, anyhow. And Jason Tyndall. Let's move on to the football. <laughs> um, so Villa was a great win for United. Uh, and I, I do think that, you know, I, I can't help myself with going back to Ineos. I think, I think this sort of, these, these positive movements are really starting to transcend the boardroom. And now they, oh, they are mate. on the pitch. We're seeing, we're seeing a confident team who believe in the future. Mate. I think, uh, yeah, look, sorry about all the links, but I, I just want to say, and I, I know I always will say it, but, the amount of stick that he's taken and the amount of stick that I've taken for sticking up for him, Diogo Dallo is fantastic. I, I think he, he is. is. Here he is, here he is. I thought Dallo was fantastic against um, against Villa. He's been fantastic the last few games. He's great with West Ham as well. But we saw a complete full-back performance. I think he was very much under pressure. He was under the cosh in terms of United, United's structure on the right-hand side wasn't so good, so he had to be very proactive in his defending. He had to do a lot of a lot of defending quite actively. Um, really did really really well to deal with a lot of the threat from Ramsey and Watkins. I think you know Jacob Ramsey one of the hardest players to stop when he's when he's in full flight, and 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 Dallo had a couple of great tackles on him. Um, obviously, the cross people will talk about for the goal, but he put in a cross which I thought was even better for Hoyland earlier in the game. And his ball to Garnacho as well was fantastic. He's put, he's put some great crosses in. Um, I think he's really worked on that part. Of it. I think I think a lot of it is confidence as well. I think he's much more confident now moving forward. And that's that, that's something that comes with results of the team too. Um, I, I think, you know, he was definitely my man of the match in the game and, and played played really, really well. Um, and we're seeing now a complete fullback who a lot of United fans think he's been our player of the season. In terms of calibre, I think... I think he has been one of the most consistent performers for Man United this season. You know, and that's shown in you know the numbers, and if you're just watching the match in general, what can you do? What can Dallo do to really consolidate himself as you know one of the top fullbacks in the league and sort of silence the critics? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a. I, I think the fact, the idea, the notion that Diogo Dallo can't defend one on one is completely false and is created because he has been in direct competition with Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who is freakishly outstanding at one-on-one defending. So Manchester United fans, like lots of football fans, will only watch their own team play, which is completely fair enough. Um, but a lot of United fans will be like, well, Dallow's not as good as Wan-Bissaka, therefore he can't be good. But his underlying 1v1 stats are very, very good. He's always been good on the back post. Um, and he's been playing in incoherent tactical setups for quite a lot of his time at, at the club. Which hasn't helped him, to be fair. Uh, now we're, you know, we're seeing a lot more structure at United, which is certainly good for him. But I think the most important thing for Diego Dallo moving forward to really stake his claim on one of the best right backs in the league is that output, is that end product. Can he be more consistent with his crossing? Can he be more consistent in being defenders? You know, he, he's very powerful. He's very, very strong, quick. He can completely, he can destroy a fullback around the outside and whip a, whip a really good ball in. Um, you know, it's sort of his signature is, is a few step overs and then burst into 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 an acceleration. And he's such an athlete. Can he start delivering with more accuracy consistently? I think he can. He's got he's got the technique. We know he's seen some of his crosses, the technique on some of his crosses. Uh, in the Villa game alone, you saw enough enough of a sample size. Three great crosses, very different sorts of crosses. Um, one of them, which one of which led to a goal. 
it's that it's the it's the end product and i think the progression is great the carrying is great the back post defending is great the 1v1 defending is great it's all coming together quite nicely now i'm going to just throw in a little bit of less technical analysis very um very twitter analysis right now <laughs> uh, and i think when dallo starts having an aura about him when he's on the ball yeah and what i mean by that is when trent and Reese James get on the ball, there's sort of an expectation that if they don't get closed down, they can deliver on the money wherever they are on the football pitch. And I think, I have doubts Dallow will ever get to a point where he has that sort of aura of like a freakishly good wide playmaking machine. I I don't personally see him getting to a point where he has that aura. Isaac, are you in a different sort of mindset to that? Do you think he, he can develop that? Well, I, I kind of see what you mean. I mean, obviously, it's a very much a um, intangible sort of means of judging a footballer. Um, I think if Dallow does develop that aura, it would be in a different sort of sense. And I think it would be in the sense of this man is so powerful, he will burst past me and my teammate if I don't get near him quickly enough and close him down. We, we, I think we started to see that a little bit where he is causing people problems around the outside consistently. Um, I don't know whether it would be the same sort of thing as Trent where you, you know, you, you, you watch Trent play. I, I, I get it with James a little bit, but again, it's more like a carrying sort of thing. I know that James is going to, it's going to burst past players with Trent. It's, it's very much, yeah, you watch him and you're like, yeah, this guy's going to pick out a great ball. We're going to close him down. Uh, and you are scared. I don't think that's the sort of player Diego Dallo is, but then I think he's a far more astute defender than Trent, so it's a different different side of the coin, right? Um, again, Trent is kind of overhated as a defender, but that's anecdotal. I don't really care. I'm not here to defend Trent Alexander-Arnold, so that's the last thing I'm here to do. Um, so, Wrong podcast, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've got absolutely... You know, Trent is probably on my top top 10 hated sportsman list, I reckon. Maybe that's another discussion for another day, but... Uh, He's in there. Oh, maybe that's the the bonus podcast, eh? The bonus episode. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. The anecdote will end. Would you? Would you, what would you have in yours? In your top ten? Any interesting names that might be controversial? My... Um, should we should we finish off the Villa match before we get into this? Or no, are no. We, let's are we pretty let's much do done? Was, was the Villa match analysis just a tribute to Dallow? Is that, is no. that what the United <laughs> <Club> podcast is? <laughs> Well, I mean, people wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, but no, we'll go back to Villa. I mean, I would just like to say that I would like to put Max Verstappen in my 10, like, without question. Um, I yeah. Put it out there that I, I'm not a Max Verstappen fan uh, for everyone. Not week. Jensen Button, yeah? Jensen Button. <laughs> oh, what a boy. Um, I love him. You're making me blush, mate. Um, but yeah, I would say, I would, <laughs> I would say, I would say that Aaron Ramsdale is definitely in there too. Emmy Martinez can go in there if he wants. And I, 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 I'll tell you what, after the game as well, Douglas Louise is knocking on the door for my top 10 hated sportsman. Um, like, what was that all about? What were your thoughts on the celebration, Isaac? What, that little shimmy. What What's he doing? to you mentally? I, I, I mean, like, to be honest, I was like, I was watching the game with my dad and my brother. And very often when I watch United games with my dad and my brother, if we're not in the ground and we're at home watching, we just argue the whole time because I'm much more positive than both of them. And my brother just winds <laughs> me up because he's so negative. And my dad is just monotonous and he's just sitting on Twitter on his phone. And then he looks up and just like, wants to say something about someone being rubbish. Um, 
so that's really harsh away with them. They're, they're, they're both very committed Manchester United fans and, and then they, they, they love the club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I, just, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if they listen, but yeah. if they do listen, I'm sorry, guys. Um, but I was just silent when the goal went in. We, we, we'd said we, we thought we were going to concede, you know, the way that it was going. And I think all three of us agreed on that topic, but it was another goal in the game for sure. And when Louise did it, like I, like, it was like a fire behind my eyes. Like just like I just I was like, what? Like because the goal went in, didn't didn't move me. He celebrates like that, and I'm all of a sudden I'm like, ah, what the hell have I just seen? Um, so yeah, I didn't like it at all. Didn't like it at all. Um, I made a nice little post about it afterwards, saying, uh, "Dance now, Douglas Louise." Um, Dance now. Quite funny. <laughs> um, he deserved it. He deserved it. He deserved what happened to him. So yeah. I was I was a bit disappointed in that more than it was just Varan that went over after the goal and gave him a little <laughs> professional talking to. But yeah, we had the Hoyland, I was half we had the hoping Garnacho sort of just like, oh yeah, yeah, the, 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 that was that was good. That went down well for me. But yeah, I was hoping a bit more. And then his his reaction to to Rio's tweet saying, "Oh, it's carnival in Brazil." No, it might be carnival in Brazil, but fuck off, mate. No, like, it's such had... such a cop yeah, out, mate. Yeah, no, I've got no no respect for him. Cop out. Yeah, yeah, whatever. He's he's he's, he's, he's he. I don't. I don't. I'm not going to slander Douglas Louise too much, but yeah, that did annoy me. Um, in terms of the actual game, I, I think like a lot of people have been quite critical of United's approach, and uh, they, they suggested that you know, although we, we did finally win a game away against a top nine team. Um, is an unsustainable method, but yeah. and I don't know. I saw quite a lot of discourse like HTOMUSC on Twitter. He made some really good points this week, and uh, one of the points that he made after the game was that, that Man City Liverpool both came to the Villa Park and didn't get a result. Like it's a very difficult place to go. Doesn't really matter how you do it. And United actually played some pretty good football. I think we were pretty wasteful in possession at times. And Ten Hag himself spoke about that. But I did want to. Well, I, I did quite a lot of notes watching, um, well, after watching the Villa game. And um, I think something that isn't accredited to Ten Hag enough, like he won the tactical battle against Unai Emery, mm. who is well known as one of the most tactically astute managers in the league. And I feel like no one's really made too many points about that. There's yeah. a lot of criticism for Ten Hag losing tactical battles when he makes mistakes. And definitely not enough praise uh, when he when he wins the match. And uh, yeah, I made a lot of notes of how how I feel Ten Hag won the tactical battle. But I am conscious that we are getting to the the bonus episode territory of the podcast. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Isaac. What what are we thinking? What are you going to go in? Are you going to talk about the fullbacks and stuff and like how they're backing up the press? Because I think that was a really important thing. Lad, I was, I, I had, bro, I've got words written down, asymmetric 4312, you oh know, technical God. insecurity. These are the words. So, like, is it really talking. Worth, like, <laughs> that bro, tactic is talking. I'm <laughs> but I'm, I'm aware, I'm aware the, the podcast is getting towards the end. So, maybe a teaser of things to come, you know. Um, hopefully, we secure the win against Luton. Yeah, and there's there's more evidence to back up Ten Hag's you know tactical flexibility within matches. But I think yeah. 
you know, starting off the, the podcast quite impromptu in the end, but I think we've covered quite a lot. I we ended up, we have, yeah. How the pod went. Um, I think, uh, mate, that was my, I think that might be my favourite episode we've done so far, actually. Um, I don't know if it would be like the most popular. I mean, to be fair, I don't really mm. look at the numbers. It's not, it, this is this is pre-season for us, right? It's next season, the serious business starts. But um, I think we've got some good yeah, I, 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 I just find it. Go for yeah. it, sorry, what are you saying? I just find it funny. Um, I am the voice of the people. I am the voice of your fans. I am the United Cloud fan base. That's what I'm trying to manifest here. So as the United Cloud fan base, and you saying this is your favourite pod, it's no surprise that your favourite pod is is the one that we dedicated a 10-minute Dallow tribute to. <laughs> it's a Dallow tribute. It, it was there. about <laughs> Dallow and Ineos. It was, you know, like Sir Jim Cloud and uh, <laughs> all of that stuff. And yeah, of course, Dallow Cloud is uh, everyone's favourite. But to be fair, I, I've I got a lot less just... of that. Like lately, since Dallow's been good and since Ineos has been I think you should just add... I think you should title the uh, the podcast Isaac's Wet Dream and then just just you get uh, many clicks. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, good stuff. Um, good episode, <laughs> very fun, lots of cool references. Um, I think it was pretty like, honestly, if I didn't know anything about, about Ashworth, didn't know anything about Wilcox, we, we could have covered a bit more, but you know. I think I was. I think we we probably gave people some, something to learn today, and you know we did our research. It was good, good, good fun, good banter. Uh, occasionally a bit dodgy Wi-Fi, so we had a few pauses here and there. But other than that, mate, I loved it. Big up United Cloud Pod. Well done for making it this far. But yeah, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, take care. See you in a bit. <laughs>